Well, good morning. I want to make a couple clarifications before we get into today's message. Um, to I, I'm, sometimes I'm not the best communicator in the world, but um, what I've said over the past couple weeks in this passage, talking about human wisdom and God's wisdom, there are two things that uh, you could have misconstrued by what I was saying. One is that I am pitting science against the Bible, and that's not what I'm doing at all. Uh, my illustrations did not um, mean that at all. My point was to reinforce that human wisdom is always changing, and one of the ways that we see that is that scientific consensus is always changing. As long as coffee is a superfood, I'm good, but eventually it's probably going to become bad for us again, that sort of thing. And number two, I did want to clarify, when I was talking about last week, when I was talking about parenting, I was not saying that there's no room for uh parenting templates or something like that. What I was saying is don't rely upon a technique to change your child's heart. It's God that changes a child's heart. Their techniques are helpful when they're in their place. And so I just want to clarify that. Sometimes I, when I communicate, I don't do as clearly as I possibly could, but I did want to just mention that. So today we're in First uh, Corinthians chapter number 1, verses 26 and following. We're finishing up the series on on the wisdom of God or the foolishness of God or whatever you want to call it. And the message is entitled, Boast in the Lord. And that's pulled from a a verse that we read today. You know, when you think about it, the work of a church in Christians is spiritual and eternal, isn't it? And that is that the goals that God has set out for us have to do with eternal things eternal future, and and deal with the heart and spiritual issues. And that is the at complete odds with the goals of broader society, aren't they? When, you, when you're, we live in a physical world, uh, we, we live in physical bodies. I don't think any of us live outside our bodies, do we? We don't yet, anyway. We don't live outside of our bodies. We live in a temporal world, and um, human Humanity at large, the goal is mainly physical. How do you have good health? How do you, um, you know, stay, live a long time? It's economic. How do you get a good place economically in the world? How do you retire into the good life? And, and, and everything about the goals of society is temporal, meaning it's, it's going to pass away. And that is what Paul is addressing here in this passage because the, the, the natural human tendency that Paul is arguing against is for us to take human means, human methodology, the things that are passing away, the things that are temporal, and use those in spiritual eternal ministry. That, that is what he's arguing against. That was the major fault of the church at Corinth is that not that they replaced uh, God's methods with with something else, but rather they tried to add to it the Bible and God and and it just doesn't work. It didn't work for them. The whole book of First Corinthians is a testament to how many problems they had because they did that. And Paul went so far as to say in verse number eighteen of chapter number one that when you add human techniques and human wisdoms and things to spiritual ministry, it nullifies the power of the gospel. And so he begins the letter by stating that um, 
Human, the God, wisdom of God is greater than human wisdom, number one, because the wisdom of God is permanent. Everything else is passing away. Human wisdom is perishing. Everything that man values, money, power, pleasures, etc., all of that is passing away. Number two, he said that human wisdom will never bring us to God. Uh, human wisdom, as a matter of fact, takes us away from God most, most of the time. How someone comes to God is that the cross is preached. And God, in his infinite wisdom, in his, his tremendous power, displays his power by drawing people to him by the preaching of the gospel, something that the world scoffs at. And then he says that the wisdom of God is greater than human wisdom because it's only the wisdom of God that displays his power. The very thing that seems foolish to men is the thing, the proclamation of the gospel is the thing that displays God's power the most. Now let's finish this uh, section today by going on to the next thing that Paul argues, and that is that the, the wisdom of God is greater in that he elects insignificant people. Now please don't take offense at this because that's Paul saying that, not me. I might be agreeing with him, but it's Paul saying that. Um, if you're going to start an organization that had the potential to impact the entire world, what kind of people would you recruit? I know what would be on my list. Highly educated, highly creative, highly relational people who already have a track record for success. Would anybody argue with that? No, that's what every business is trying to do. But what did Jesus do? When he decided to build the church, he went to a backwater of Israel, Galilee, and found some uneducated fishermen. By the way, when I use the word uneducated, their terminology was uneducated in the law of God, in, the, in what they thought the law of God said. And he used normal, average, everyday fishermen and tax collectors and people like that to build the church. They were scoffed at by the elite in Jerusalem. They were called backwards and uneducated, and yet they were amazed at what was going on. And Paul is saying in these verses that we read today, verse number 26 in particular, that that is what God is still doing today. He's still calling average, everyday, normal people that the elites despise, that the educated ignore, to turn the world upside down. Isn't that great? think about it. Paul is arguing that the wisdom of God turns the wisdom of man on its head. And what is his proof? He's saying the wisdom of God turns the wisdom of man upside down, and my proof is you. There are some things about the Bible that make me laugh. Um, this is one of them. How would you like to be eternally memorialized the way verse number 26 memorializes people? There are other things in the Bible, like, for example, when John is, is giving the account of the resurrection, he, he makes sure that he notes that he outran Peter to the grave. You ever notice that? There, there are some really funny things in the Bible that if you take time to think about them, they're funny. But, um, but Paul it says this. He says, For consider your calling, brother. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Let me translate for you real quick. He basically said, y'all are nobodies. 
That, that's what he's saying. He's saying some of you are wise, court. Some of you are noble. But for the most part, God chooses average everyday people for salvation. The word chose is used three times in the verse, in the verses. And, and the Corinthians are not God's people because of who they are, but because of who he is. Their salvation is a result of the, the free and magnanimous grace of God. If you are a believer, it is because it pleased God that you get saved. God didn't call you because you're brilliant. He didn't call you because you're wealthy. He didn't call you because you're intelligent or because you're powerful. Now, some of you may be that way. He doesn't need those kinds of people to move his kingdom along. God's not looking for millionaires or famous athletes or entertainers or statesmen. Salvation is open to everybody, but God mainly calls average people, and that's totally opposite of the way the the world works. It's not through some stroke of luck that people come to God. It's not that we were wiser than everybody else, that we found the way of salvation. I'm sorry for all the rest of you that you're not smart enough to find the way of salvation. Um, It's not any of that because the Corinthians were in that church because of God's initiative. He uses words like your calling and he chose and they were there because of God's design and he was stitching that assembly together just like he's stitching this assembly together and he stands the world's wisdom on its head verses 27 and 28 the, who who's he talk about he says the foolish and the weak and the lowly and the despised and the things that are not can i translate real quick what those verses are saying God chose people who were not considered wise, who had no political power, those who were lowly to be saved. And I love, and finally, I love that last little phrase. He says, those who are not. You know what he's saying? Nothings. God chose nothings. He chose nobodies. And and that goes against all human wisdom. All human philosophy that he chose the the nobodies to love, not the somebodies. God elects nots. People are often tempted, and and you've heard it. You've heard people talk about that. Wouldn't it be great if so-and-so would become a Christian because they're so influential or they're so intelligent or they're so popular or or whatever else? It it would just, it would make such a difference. But but Jesus didn't um, think that way when he chose the disciples, did he? He didn't scour uh, Jerusalem for the the greatest Pharisee or the, the, the most notable scribe. No, he ignored Jerusalem altogether and went to Galilee and just looked for average, everyday, ordinary people. And we're going to explain why in just a moment. But I do want to talk about celebrity conversions. Can I talk about celebrity conversions for just a minute? I've had a lot of people asking me recently about Kanye West and, and his conversion. And, and um, he claims to have become a Christian. And there are two big reactions to that that I see all the time when a celebrity claims that. The first main reaction is the excited response that says, oh, finally, people are going to realize that Christianity is not uncool. 
that normal people, uh, popular people can become Christians. And there's an expectation that goes along with that, that of tremendous influence. Man, he's going to influence a lot of people. Let me ask you a question. There was a Heisman Trophy winner named Tim Tebow who was outspoken about his Christianity. How many people did he end up influencing in the world with his Christianity? Um, and, and so that that's the the one reaction. The second reaction comes from probably people like my age and older who have seen plenty of celebrity conversions that don't last, and so they're jaded. And they'll say, yeah, this thing's not going to last. Just give it a little bit of time. And can I say this? Both of those attitudes are wrong. Let's just think about Kanye for just a minute, can we? Everything I've read and everything I understand about him is he's a very passionate guy, and he does not care what people think about him. Um, and, and we've seen that over and over and over again. But the way that I would approach him, the way I am approaching him, and I, I have prayed for that young man, is I am praying that he really is a genuine convert. We ought to pray for his strength because as a new believer, he is going to be opposed on every side. We need to pray for wisdom. He is a new believer. He's going to mess up royally. Don't new believers mess Did any of you mess up when you were a new believer? You didn't, did you? He's going to mess up. They're... they're we ought to pray for his growth in Christ's likeness and in the knowledge of God so that he begins to love God more and more and more. And let's not think for a moment that his conversion would advance the cause of Christ any more than yours or mine. Why do I say that? The answer is, it's the same infinitely powerful God who is behind his conversion that's behind yours. And so you can have just as much influence as he did. So you know what I do? I, I do pray for him. He comes up in the news, in my news feed regularly. And when he does, I pray because I want to see him grow in the Lord. If he's not a convert, I pray that that will change. But that's, that's how I am. What is the Bible's attitude towards that, by the way? This is what I tell uh, young people. I, I told one of my children this who, who talked to me about this. I said, time will tell. And that's not a jaded response. That's the Bible. Jesus said, the one who endures to the end shall be saved. Your, your perseverance shows your conversion. And it's no different from him than, than it is from us, right? So we need to pray for him that God will uh, make him strong and, and endure through it. The Corinthians desired to be people of status and respect. But God most often chooses those who do not possess such qualities simply because, ready, God doesn't need our help. I remember one time when I was, I was a four, four or five, I think I was four, we, we went to this church that was on a hill by the lake, uh, Lake Decatur in Decatur, Illinois. And it was snowing one time, and a lady got a car stuck. And these men we're going to help push the car out of the ditch. And um, and that was exciting to me. And I thought, man, I'm a pretty strong guy at four years old. I'm going to go help. And I told my dad, I'm going to help. And I, I still remember to this day, he's like, no, you don't need to help. And I'm like, but I, but I want to help, Dad. I'm going to go help. 
And I went out there, and I remember, I don't I think there were three guys behind the car, and I was pushing on the car with those guys, and we got that person out of the ditch. And I remember walking back thinking, we got them out, and I helped. Did they really need my help? Our human efforts are about as effective as a four-year-old trying to push a car out of a ditch. God does not need us to do his work, does he? There's, a, there's another thing that we learn about uh, God's wisdom. It's greater than human wisdom because of God's elective purposes. What do I mean by that? There are two reasons why God elects and saves normal, average people like you and me. Let's read verses 27 and 28, and we'll see uh, why. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose the low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So here's the first purpose. The first purpose of our salvation is to bring shame to the wise of this world. Now, we need to understand something. You look around right now and you think, well, there's no shame in, in being a non-Christian in our society. And that is absolutely true. As a matter of fact, it's, it's becoming more and more to be a Christian, to hold to the beliefs of the Bible is a shame. So what is Paul talking about here? He's actually talking about eternal shame. Shame them for all of eternity. He, he, in so doing, God is subverting the values of secular society because eternity is not on their radar. It's not part of their value set at all. And so when God says, I'm going to shame the wise of this world, all of their wisdom amounts to nothing. It says in verse number 28, bring to nothing. God acts in such a way to nullify the status of the elite. Now, there's a, there's a term that the Bible uses. It's called the last day or maybe you've heard the term, the day of the Lord. You, you've heard that term, right? The day of the Lord. What is he talking about when he says the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is not one day. The day of the Lord is the end time events around when Christ comes back in the second coming. And when he comes back in the second coming, he's going to do several things. Number one, he's going to conquer the world system. Number two, he's going to judge perfectly everybody according to his righteous standard. And those that don't meet up go for eternal punishment. Those that do, who are saved, go to eternal glory. And the third thing that he does is he recreates the world. That's the day of the Lord. And when that day comes, it does not matter how brilliant you are, how large your 401k is, what position you have at the firm, your intelligence or your fame or any of that, it will all come to naught on the day of the Lord, you see? And that turns the values that everybody's striving for completely upside down. You will not stand before the, the Lord and say, God, didn't you like my garden? Wasn't my house beautiful? Wasn't I really clever at the firm when I did this? None of those things that the world values will be of any value in the last day. And so Paul says that one of the things that is going on is he is nullifying the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the wise. Now, look at chapter 2 and verse number 6. Look at chapter 2. He uses that word nullify again, the word behind the word nullify. He says, Yet among the, the mature, 
we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to what? The ESV says pass away. There's that word nullify again. And so when he says bring to nothing in, in uh, verse number 28, it's the same word in verse number 6 as pass away. The world measures greatness by many standards. And at the top are intelligence, wealth, prestige, and position. All the things which God has determined to put at the bottom of his list and reveals the greatness of his power by demonstrating that it's the world's nobodies, the average everyday people who take his wisdom. And, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. And when they honor him and his wisdom, that is when he honors them and he turns everything upside down. The second purpose of your salvation is his own glory. He goes on to say, that verse number 29, let's look at uh, verse number 29, so that no human being may boast in the presence of the Lord. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom uh, from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in who? The Lord, glorify the Lord. The ultimate and primary purpose for your salvation is his glory. The ultimate purpose of the wisdom of God is his own glory. That reminds me of an Old Testament event. Do you remember back in Judges 6 and 7 when um, the, the Israelites are being overrun by the Midianites and the Amalekites and God comes to, and it's so bad that God comes to this guy named Gideon and he's trying to thresh the, the wheat in in an olive press. And it's very hard to get the wind to blow when you're in a pit. That's where he was, trying to separate the wheat from the chaff. And God comes to him and says, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to use you to deliver from the Amalekites and the Midianites. And Gideon, he, he goes through the fleeces. You remember that? Uh, the fleece wet and dry and then dry and wet. And, and you read all that. And then Gideon assembles the army. He calls his army and assembles them and he goes out and God looks at him and he says, you know what? You have way too many people. Tell everybody who's scared, go home. 22,000 people went home. Two thirds. He's left with 10,000 people against the sea of Midianites and Amalekites. And God looked at him and said, you know what? It's still way too many. I want to give you a test. And the test was how they drank the water. And only the ones that passed this test. Can you imagine when Gideon's halfway through that 10,000 people and he's got like 150 guys standing over there. And he's looking over there where the Midianites and the Malachites are and there's thousands and thousands and thousands. And he's thinking, what's going on? And he finishes with 300 men. Why did God make the numbers so low? Well, Judges chapter 7, verse number 2, he says this. He says, My own, uh, he says, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Here's the reason lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. And the purpose of God to go that low in numbers was so that we would boast and look at what God has done. And that, that um, saving of the Israelites from the Amalekites and Midianites is a picture of the church today. 
We have this vast sea of secular society who give no thought to God. Many of them are against God. And then we have people who are righteous and holy, and it's only a remnant. The Bible always says there's only a remnant all the way through history. And God is saving average, everyday, ordinary people so that at the end of time, the boasting that goes on is in the Lord and not in human wisdom and human power and human ingenuity. And with that, we see God saying here that there are four benefits to us. God benefits us, by the way. It's not just his glory. He gives us benefits. Look at these verses. And you'll notice there are four benefits to our salvation. The first one is that we're given God's wisdom. He says we are, we are, we are saved um, by God's wisdom, and we are also given God's wisdom to replace our own wisdom. We're given God's wisdom. The person of the world cannot see or, or even receive God's wisdom because it hasn't been imparted. That's how Paul can say, if you look at chapter number 2 in verse number 14, Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. It's only when God gives you life that the spirit inside of you is alive that you're able to discern spiritual things. And when he does that, you see all the way through the book of Proverbs, you see all the way in the New Testament that wisdom is fearing the Lord. Wisdom is obeying the Lord. Wisdom is taking on God's values. And so God imparts in you a wisdom to take his values, which are so at odds with the value of the society around us and around the the Corinthians. And so this wisdom that we're given is the, the ability to discern spiritual matters. But there's a second benefit. And that is God's righteousness. When we trust the Son, we share in the righteousness of the Son. We saw that already in in communion earlier this morning. The Bible says, For His sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the what? The righteousness of God. When God looks at a Christian, He sees the righteousness of Christ. Because Christ took our unrighteousness. We exchanged that garment, that dirty garment, for a clean garment of God's righteousness. And as that's judicial. That's, that's declared righteous. And throughout our lives, then we begin to grow in righteousness. The frequency of our obedience increases and the frequency of our sin decreases. And we begin to walk in the Spirit. And we are being tra- transformed and renewed in God's sanctification. That's another thing that we're given. We are given holiness, and then we become more holy. And then the fourth benefit is God's redemption. That is, uh, the word redeem means to buy back. God, by Christ, has purchased us from the power of sin. What tremendous benefits we have by being in Christ Jesus. The result is that we've been given all these things. Look at the last, last part of that chapter. Let him that boasts boast in the Lord, right? What it says, let's turn to the Old Testament where this is a quotation. Turn to Jeremiah chapter number nine. And we're going to look at verse 23 and 24. I want to show you the context of that quote because it it's, it just feels like literally Jeremiah and, I, and Paul are talking to the same people. Now the setup for Jeremiah nine 
is that um, there are a bunch of uh, Jeremiah during Jeremiah's day, Israel is very wealthy. And Jeremiah is talking to the very wealthy, very prestigious people, saying to them, do not rely upon these things for your standing before God. He says in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. It's not just an understanding of God. It's knowing. It's an intimate personal relationship. In the Old Testament, when you know something, it's talking about a relationship. We see this in the in the euphemism that the Old Testament uses. And Abraham knew his wife, Sarah, and they bore a son. Isaac knew Rachel and she bore a son. That's, that's an intimate um, a relationship there. Let him who boasts Boast that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, that I practice steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. Dear Christian, do you want to delight the Lord? Then understand and know him. Search his scriptures. Be changed by his word. When you read what he's pleased by, do those things that please him. When you read what he is unpleased with, then don't do those things. And have your heart set on eternal things and and begin to take on God's wisdom and, and have your affections set on things above because that is when God is pleased. And so in the end, when you are changed and when you're growing in Christ's likeness and we as a church are not using human means and human wisdom, marketing techniques or anything else to to grow people in Christ Jesus, God is glorified because we're not boasting anything but him alone. Let me give you another benefit. And that is God's wisdom is greater than our wisdom because it's preached in weakness. Let's read chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 together. Because now Paul is talking about, okay, what's the application for all of this? All this human wisdom, God's wisdom thing, what's the application? He says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming to you a testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul now says, I am a walking illustration of the truth that I've just been teaching. I didn't come to you using the latest in rhetorical techniques, using the the wisdom of the sophist, entertaining you with speech. I came with the simple gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you fearfully and in trembling, wondering, is is the Lord going to work? Knowing that the only way the the Corinthians are going to be converted and grow is if God is at work. I, as a preacher, I have one task and one task only. You know what that is? That's to present the truth of God, to preach God's truth. I don't, my job is not to give you my opinion what I think about politics or climate change or any social issue up here. My job is not even to tell you how to have a nice day. 
how to have a good marriage, how to rear your children. My job is to take the Word of God and to proclaim the Word of God and let God's Word work on your heart. Unfortunately, many people aren't looking for that, are they? They want to hear a talk that will inspire them. I felt so inspired today at church. They, they, they want to hear a man give them special insight into the things of this world. Well, you know, this, all this talk about eternity isn't real relevant. Actually, it's way more relevant than you can ever imagine to talk about eternity, isn't it? And that is why Paul told Timothy this. Listen to what he said. The Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teaching of demons, and through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seal, uh, seared, and they'll, have, they'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. In other words, they'll only go hear the teachers that they enjoy, that they, they think uh, will give them advantage in this world. And so people move from church to church to church looking for the right preacher, looking for the right service. And you know what that is? That's whatever their subjective analysis happens to be. If I want to hear the comedian, I'm going to go to the church that's got the funny pastor. If I want to be inspired, I'm going to go to the church that has this inspiring pastor. If I want to have a short service, I'm going to go to the church with a pastor that has nothing to say. Um, <clears throat> some of you are probably thinking, well, you, should, you could take a hint or two. But uh, You know what the right preaching is? I'm going to close, but you know what the right preaching is? The right preaching is Jesus Christ and him crucified and how that affects our life in eternity. I can't think of a better way to close than with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. If you don't know who he is, he was a Baptist preacher in London in the 1800s. And what he says is as pertinent today as ever. Look at what he says. He says, the power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Thank the Lord. Otherwise, men would be converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist in the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongue is rotted, till we would exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the Word of God to give it its power to convert the soul. Amen? And every morning, I was, just, I was texting a friend of mine from, from Pound this morning, every Sunday morning, there is a desperation in my heart for the Holy Spirit to work because I realize fully standing up here, if God's word is proclaimed and the Holy Spirit is not there, then it is useless for you to be here and for me to be speaking. It's when God works in his mighty spirit and in his power that he's glorified and we are changed and we boast in him and not in ourselves and our own wisdom. Amen. And so that's why we do what we do at Providence Bible Church. Lord, I thank you for the, the writing of Paul, for the wisdom of God. I, I pray that we will be motivated to trust God and take him at his word. To, to place more 
of our heart in eternal values and temporal values. To be more obedient, to have more understanding and spiritual insight. And and Lord, it's so tempting when when we tell people about Christ to want to add something to the message of Christ and Him crucified, whether it's God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life or or God's going to give you a great marriage or whatever we want to add to it. May we not do that, but rather, Lord, will we just proclaim the gospel. May we read the gospel. May people be saved and people changed and you glorified in Christ's name. Amen.